Welcome back to the sixth episode of The Tea. I'll be covering news wrapping up the end of February. This week we're going to talk about three things. So first, the SMU General Assembly and the Divest for Human Rights motion. And then, directly following that, the SMU Legislative Council meeting that debated and discussed that motion even further. Then we're going to talk about a judicial board hearing on the BDS movement. And finally, a quick look into how the curfew is impacting migrant workers. As always, I'm your host, Sequoia Kim, and you can reach me at the email news at mcgilltribune.com. Let's start with the SMU General Assembly. So, as I explained a little bit in the last podcast, the General Assembly is sort of a form of direct democracy at McGill, where students and organizations can submit motions that are directly voted on at this meeting, and that can mandate SMU to act should they pass right then and there. Now, an important thing to note here is that the General Assembly needs quorum to pass motions. So in the context of this GA, they needed at least 350 people present or else it turns into a consultative forum, um, which means that, you know, people can still vote and it just has to go through legislative council instead of being directly approved right there. While there were two motions on the table, the divest for human rights was really at the heart of the meeting. New staff writer Ellen Malloy attended the four-hour meeting that went past 10 p.m. And uh, she will be joining me on the podcast this week to lead us through what happened. So we talked about the actual motion last week on the podcast with another Ella, Ella Fitzhugh, who covered that for the news. Um, But Ella, could you give us a quick primer of what this motion entails, uh, just to jug our memory? Um, So the motion in question is called the Divest for Human Rights Policy. Seven McGill student organizations collaborated to draft this motion, which demands that McGill divest from a group of companies that either aid or are complicit in human rights violations um, in environmental destruction. Um, So the motion comprises of three sections, each of which uh, focus on different issues. Um, but its main focus is really on corporations that are involved with the coastal pipe or coastal gas link pipeline, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the Uyghur genocide. Yeah. So without getting into the ideological debate that sort of erupted out of the meeting, especially like when it came time to debate the motion, again, if you want to listen to that and like see the whole thing, you can watch the whole shebang happen on Smoo's YouTube channel. But Ella, I'm wondering if you could describe to us the general timeline of the meeting and like kind of how it was structured and what happened up until the vote. So the meeting started almost half an hour late uh, because GA staff had to let every attendee in individually. So with almost 390 people, there was that was like quite the process. <laughs> Um, And then basically the first half of the meeting kind of focused on explaining how the GA would work. Um, So they went over all the rules and processes uh, for questions, debate and voting because there was a lot of people there who might not know kind of how that all works. And then the first motion presented was on reappointing the auditor for the 2021 fiscal year. They didn't spend a lot of time on it um, and it got approved right away. Like I don't think there was a debate period even for that. They were just like, we're just gonna approve it. Um, And then the focus then kind of shifted to the divest for human rights motion um, and the question and debate periods on that motion took up the majority of the meeting. And then after a vote occurred on that motion, the meeting just ended with executive reports uh, from the school president and vice presidents and they kind of by that point it was like getting late so they kind of like just like rolled through that. Something pretty interesting happened when it came time to vote on the divest motion though. So Ella, I'm wondering, 
what happened? Yeah, so it was interesting. So for the majority of the meeting, quorum was met. So there was at least 350 people in the meeting. And essentially, the debate on the Divest for Human Rights motion had been going on for quite a while. Um, and by the end of it, people were really just repeating arguments that had already been brought up before. Um, so someone called for a vote to end the debate and go right into the voting period for the motion. And that vote was approved, but almost immediately after, the attendee list dropped from 390 to 307, which meant quorum was lost right before the actual voting period for the uh, Divest for Human Rights motion. As a result, the it's nothing's like over yet. Like the campaign's going to be put to a vote at the next legislative council meeting on February 25th. It just meant it didn't get approved uh, at the actual GA. You can read Ella's coverage of the GA linked in the show notes. So as I mentioned, because the GA failed to sustain quorum at the time of voting, it was approved in a consultative manner and got referred to legislative council. Nina Russell, a longtime friend of the Tribune, covered the Legislative Council meeting where that motion was debated and is here to talk us through the meeting. So, Nina, the debate lasted for almost two hours at Legislative Council, and you mentioned in your article that much of the discussion focused on sections 3.22 and 3.2.3 of the policy. Could you tell us a bit um, about those sections? So the motion itself aims to expand SMU's capacity to lobby for human rights, specifically by allowing it to pressure the McGill administration into divesting from companies that are complicit in major human rights violations. Where it gets contentious in sections 3.2.2 and 3.2.3, as you said, is where the motion describes uh, the roles of the Oshkosh Corporation, which is an industrial truck company, and Remax, which is a real estate developer, um, and their respective roles in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So the motion cites sources saying that the Oshkosh Corporation has provided trucks that have been used by the Israeli military to transport weapons, and that Remax has sold real estate in Israeli settlements. So passing the motion would, in effect, permit SMU to lobby the administration to divest from those two companies. As much as it's difficult to recap a two-hour-long debate, did you identify any sort of like dominant themes and arguments that kept coming up and that people were raising? Like, what did people have to say about this motion? As you mentioned earlier, the debate primarily focused on the two sections that we just spoke about. Generally, everybody, almost everybody, was pretty much in agreement about the importance of SMU having the ability to advocate for human rights. Some argued that passing the motion, which acknowledges Israel's complicity in human rights violations against Palestinians, both constitutes anti-Semitism in and of itself, on the part of SMU and could also potentially lead to an increase in anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic motivated attacks on campus. On the other hand, a few others argued that accusing the motion of being anti-Semitic is disingenuous and effectively detracts from the substance of the motion itself, which is to increase SMU's capacity to protect human rights. So after the debate period, the motion was approved with 21 councillors voting in favour, four abstaining and five opposed. Nina, did the council mention any next steps for this motion? No, they didn't. I guess we'll have to keep an eye out on the external affairs portfolio to see what comes next. Thank you so much for being here, Nina. You can read Nina's coverage of the Legislative Council and it will be linked in the show notes. On Friday, February 19th, SMU's Judicial Board, which you might hear me refer to as J-Board in this episode, convened to make a final judgment on, this is a super confusing title, so bear with me, reference 
regarding the applicability of the student services or society services of the 2016 reference, RE, legality of the BDS motion and similar motions. So this wording is super confusing and it's because the J board went back to reinterpret a contentious ruling, which was titled the legality of the BDS movement. And that was made back in 2016. So they're pretty much just going back to that. So there's like two titles kind of mashed together. And so we'll get to discussing that in my conversation. Don't worry, we'll flesh it all out um, in my conversation with Sophia, managing editor for SciTech and Sports at the McGill Tribune, who covered the hearing for the news section this week. All right, so let's start with a quick primer. I've been tossing around the BDS acronym, which stands for Boycotts, Divestments, Sanctions, in my introduction. So I was just wondering, could you tell us a bit about what BDS is before we jump into the hearing? So BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, and it's a Palestinian-led movement that was in response to a 2005 call from the Palestinian Civil Society um, that basically promotes the financial targeting of um, the government of Israel to push for its government to comply with um, international law and universal principles of human rights. So they have some main demands, um, namely that um, Israel ends its occupation and colonization of all Arab lands, as well as dismantling the West Bank wall. Their second demand um, deals with recognizing the fundamental rights of the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to the full equality. And lastly, to respect and protect as well as promote the rights of Palestinian refugees as they return to their homes and properties. And then specifically BDS McGill is a grassroots student-led organization that promotes the BDS movement on campus. Okay, cool, thanks for that context. And there's actually like a little bit more background information that I'm um, gonna ask you about because the hearing and reference that was discussed um, this Friday actually like looped back to a reference that was made back in 2016 that I just referenced. And that was when the J board produced a reference regarding the legality of the BDS motion and similar motions. And it basically ruled that SMU would not be able to adopt an official position on geopolitical issues that do not directly affect students and events on campus. Yeah, so Sophia, I'm just wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about that 2016 ruling and about the reasons that the J board gave and like sort of the implications that have uh, come out of that? In 2016, um, following a ruling, um, well, not a ruling, a decision from the new General Assembly to support um, the BDS movement, a lot of sort of hostilities, as the media put it, um, a lot of hostilities were stirred up amongst people who supported the movement on campus and people who did not support the movement on campus. Um, and so the J Board um, had a reference in 2016 regarding the legality of the BDS movement. So basically what they ruled was that although the movement itself was not something they could comment on, um, it was unconstitutional for SMU and any of the clubs and services under SMU to adopt an official position in support of BDS. Given that the J board rulings are highly technical, I would encourage everyone who is interested to read up more uh, about this issue online and read the actual documents. And again, Sophia's article will be linked in the show notes. You can read that as well. So although the J board ruling has yet to be released from the hearing, the J board ruling should be brought to the SMU board of directors within two weeks of the hearing as per the official judicial board procedures. And also every J board ruling has to be passed and approved by the board of directors. So whether or not they pass it remains to be seen. Coming into the final segment for this week, I thought I would talk about an article that I actually wrote for the news section this week, and I looked into the curfew's impact on migrant undocumented temporary workers, and 
I learned so much through my conversation with people, so I thought I would share some of those stories. So ever since Quebec implemented the province-wide 8pm to 5am curfew, many advocates have been vocal about its disproportionate impact on unhoused and migrant populations. So, of course, while the government's neglect to exempt unhoused community from the curfew was outright egregious at the start, the Quebec Superior Court Justice Chantal Masse's order to officially exempt them from the curfew as of January 26th certainly rectified that moral trespass, but advocates are, are still pushing for more provincial support. And this week I decided to look at how the curfew is impacting migrant undocumented temporary workers. So I talked to Mustafa Hannaway, who is an organizer at the Immigrant Workers Center, the IWC. I talked to Gaurav Sharma, who is also an IWC organizer. I also talked to Jill Hanley, the associate professor at the McGill School of Social Work and scientific director of the Sherpa Research Institute on migration, health, and social services, sort of to get a deeper look into the curfew's burden on migrant populations. So before we even get into the curfew's impact, I asked Jill about how the pandemic has exacerbated pre-existing inequities, which at this point just sounds like a cliche, um, but it's really something that the pandemic has revealed to us. And she signaled two factors in particular as being a driving force behind plunging migrant workers into precarious work. So one was the immigration system and second was the exploitative labor market and what they do with that system. So she mentions that the Canadian immigration system, by even having precarious statuses in the first place that require, you know, work permits, puts people at risk because then employers can see that these people have vulnerable status. So then I spoke to Mustafa Hennaway about some of the curfew's direct implications for vulnerable workers. And in my interview, he mentioned that a lot of the work that immigrants and migrants do is just not a nine to five job. Like they often take up night jobs, working in kitchens, people um, working in cleaning and warehouses, delivery jobs, care work. And these jobs happen around the clock. So they're going to be the ones who are out the most and they're going to be targeted the most. And this brings me into another big issue in play here, which is the impact of police. So after 8pm, police officers can stop anyone and ask them for a letter of attestation, which is basically a letter from the employer that explains why that employee is to be exempt from the curfew. Say you work past 7.30, you work at night, you're going to need a reason why um, to convince the police, basically. Hennaway pointed out to me that many warehouse worker employee letters are very impersonal and often are very weak and cause suspicion in the eyes of the police. So some warehouses don't even put the employer's name, they're just kind of printed out en masse. Sometimes they aren't even printed out at all. And because of the way that the curfews are enforced, like sometimes it's simply not enough to have such a generic letter. And this can put them at risk. And people have also alleged that police question a lot of these workers for extended periods of time and naturally, it can sometimes lead to questions about someone's immigration status. And while matters of immigration and status fall outside the SPVM, so, you know, the Montreal Police Service's jurisdiction, they technically are in control of that. The police coordination with the Canadian Border Service Agency, the CBSA, poses a risk of deportation or detention to undocumented and temporary foreign workers should that conversation come up. So essentially what happens is the police can pretty much hand people over to the CBSA. 
Another thing to note here, too, is also how well-documented systemic racism present within Quebec's police forces also plays into this issue, because not only do people risk deportation and detention, but racialized people also statistically have a much higher chance of being pulled over by police because of racial profiling. Mustafa mentioned a particularly alarming case of this happening in Montreal. So there's this company called Good Food, and he notes that people were ticketed for curfew violation in front of the Good Food waiting for the bus stop on their way home. And keep in mind, Good Food is in a part of Montreal where there are only warehouses. There is no one there. And so the fact that police were circling around that pretty dead area of town, I think is indicative of, of this kind of racial profiling in action. So on January 26th, the IWC published a statement titled End Curfew Repression, Stop Police Harassment. It's available on their website, and they issued four policy recommendations to better protect um, vulnerable migrant workers. So one of them calls on the city to institute a don't ask, don't tell policy, which would effectively sever any ties between the police force and the CBSA. So basically, they're asking for the city of Montreal to stop having a hand entirely in deportations and detentions. Uh, another notable policy recommendation includes calling for the implementation of municipal IDs. So I believe New York has implemented something similar to this, but it's a form of identification that would be made available to status and non-status people alike that would allow people to legally identify themselves without disclosing their immigration status. Because remember, not everybody has a health card or a driver's license, and so having these municipal IDs would certainly be helpful, especially in the context of the curfew. The IWC has been doing some very, very amazing advocacy throughout the entire pandemic, and SMU recently released a statement condemning the Quebec curfew's impact on unhoused and migrant populations. And if you read that statement, there's a bunch of really cool organizations linked at the end of that statement. This wraps up the podcast. Thank you for tuning in this week. Some credits. Thank you to multimedia editors Sarah Ford and Alex Hinton for editing the podcast, to creative director Aidan Martin and editor-in-chief Helen Wu for executive production. Thanks to design editor Chloe Rodriguez for making the podcast graphic. And a big thank you to Ella, Nina, and Sophia for being on the podcast today. Thanks for listening and see you next week.